coming up on the Sark Fighter podcast. So by the, if I'm not on oxygen and I walk five meters from my seat here into the kitchen to make breakfast, I'm completely out of breath and I have no oxygen. I'm giddy, I'm lightheaded. The Sark Fighter podcast brings you the story of a woman who struggles to walk even a hundred meters in a day, a hundred yards, because her lungs are so clogged with the disease. It, it's difficult, um, but it's part of life. It, it, it's just what I, can, I do what I can manage. And yet, Juliet Coffer is raising money just by doing laps in her living room. I just thought, okay, you're a little bit overweight, you don't do much exercise and you smoke. That's all it is. I, it never occurred to me I could be ill. Not in a million years. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast. Living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 42 of the Sark Fighter podcast, brought to you in part by a generous grant from A-Tire Pharma. I do this podcast because I want to offer my fellow Sark Fighters hope, and we have some reason for that today, and you will get it in spades when you listen to how hard Juliet Coffer is working to do what most of us really just take for granted, and she is doing it for the greater good. And we'll be listening to her story. But before we get into her delightful interview, I need to give you a couple of little background notes, do some business here. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band. It's the White Hot Lizards. They're in Alberta, Canada. You can hear Mark's story, the story behind the lyrics in episode 12. And I, I will tell you that occasionally I play the entire song for you at the end of a podcast, and I did that at the end of episode 41. So you might want to just go back and listen. You hear the little bits and pieces of the song in and between the segments of the podcast. But every once in a while, I just put the whole song out there so you can listen to it. And it's right there at the end of episode 41, the episode prior to this one. I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I am fighting Sark. I have neurosarcoidosis. And you're fighting Sark in some way or another, or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be listening. I don't think we have any casual listeners to the podcast. Of course, I think it's so wonderful that I don't know why everybody in the world doesn't listen, but I, I, I'll just go with if you're if you're here, you're listening because you're impacted by sarcoidosis in one way or another. Maybe you have sarc, maybe you're a family member, maybe you're a, a researcher, pharmaceutical company, whatever it is, you're in the sarc space, and this is a place where we can all gather. And what I hear over and over from people is they don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. They just kind of feel like they're all alone. And um, I just want to let you know that you're not and that there is a reason for hope. We talk to these researchers and, and they're making progress. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is, is doing great things. And I serve as a volunteer with them on the Patient Advisory Committee and volunteer in many other ways in addition to this podcast. So, um, advocate is the word I couldn't think of. Um, 
So, uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. And then, you know, I've just kind of connected with some people in the UK and uh, Sark UK is doing great things as well. They're the ones who hooked me up with Juliet, who uh, will be the interview today. So um, there's just a lot of reason for hope. At the, at the end of the day, that's what I want you to take away from this. Normally, we release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday. And as I'm speaking to you today, as always, my trusty dog, Dog Dougal, the boxer, is curled up on the chair in my office. And Dougal makes my life so much better. He was a puppy that we uh, got from the local SPCA. And during COVID, instead of fostering a dog for two weeks, they said, yeah, you got to keep him for two months. And after two months, there was no way that Dougal was going back to the SPCA. I could not part with him, and uh, it's been one of the best things that ever happened to me. Hey, I'm going to tell you about, before we get into my interview with Juliet, in a strange way, what I did this past weekend kind of relates to sarcoidosis. So stick with me for a minute and, and see if you don't see where I'm going with this. So Last weekend, my son Ben and I rented a machine that grinds up stumps, all right? And I have a couple of big stumps in my yard. Ben had one in his yard where trees had been cut down. So this thing has got tracks on it, kind of like a small little bulldozer, but you don't ride on it. You walk behind it, and you guide the spinning wheel at the front of it up onto the stump, and then you move the spinning wheel with sharp blades on it back and forth, and it essentially reduces the stump to sawdust or at least mulch. And it, yeah, it took like took like an hour to do a stump that was eight inches high and a foot and a half across next to my driveway. And I was so happy to have that gone. It worked great for that. And then the second stump was much larger. It was an old cherry tree in my backyard. And so my son Ben and I are taking turns removing this bigger stump. We're out in the sun. And then all of a sudden, Ben's running the machine and it stalls. So we checked the gas. It was okay. So we started it again and it ran for a little bit and then it stalled again. Well, this got worse and worse until finally... This machine would only run for about 15 seconds before stalling. And by this time, we had the majority of the stump ground up, but we probably had about 20% more work to do if the yard was ever going to be back to where I could level it out and put in some topsoil and just make it look like that stump was never there, put in some grass seed and just make the lawn look nice and flat where the stump and the roots had been. Well, I couldn't get the machine to run, so I checked the air filter. I checked the fuel filter. I even took it off and I added more gas, but nothing would get the chipper going full speed again. And I was able to make do for a little bit by running the choke on the machine. So it would start to stall and I would slide the choke up and that would get it running again, suggesting that it was starved for either air or fuel. Uh, and But eventually even that didn't work anymore. Plus it was hot and it was just kind of became a miserable situation. So why am I telling you this? Well, I think that that machine's woes mirror what we suffer with sarcoidosis. Let's walk this back a little bit. One day, eh, something just doesn't feel right, but you push through it. Well, then it gets a bit worse. You shake it off and you go again, kind of not feeling like yourself, but but it's okay. And then finally, it gets to the point where this is so bad, you've got to go to the doctor. But they can't figure it out. They can't fix it. 
And then you look ahead and you have so many plans, you have so much life to live, you have places to go, grandkids, bucket list trips, bucket list adventures, things that you just want to do. Maybe you're older, maybe you only have, say, 20, 25, 30% of your life left to live, but you got to do it. And it doesn't really matter what that number is. None of us really knows how much life we have left to live. But you just know that you, you're not done yet. You're not done doing the stuff that you set out to do. Just like my stump chipper, right? I, I, I've still got some more chipping to do before that yard is is going to be what I wanted it to be, but I can't figure out what's going on. And, uh, and even after they do figure it out, I you know I get the I get the choke to work, but it's not really working. Does this all sound familiar? Am I making any sense, or or is this a reach? I think it makes sense. I think there's a strong parallel. And let me go just a little bit further because at this point the machine is not working anymore. It's back at the rental place. They're talking about maybe giving me a make good for another day once and if they figure out what's wrong with it. But in the meantime, that's a lot of rigmarole. You've got to go with the truck. You got to get this thing on the trailer. You got to, you know, it's a whole nother Saturday and it's a lot. So probably what I'm going to have to do is go out there with an axe and just chop out those roots that are still sticking up in the yard before that lawn will ever have a chance. But it's going to be 95 degrees and humid this week and probably for the next two or three weeks here in Virginia, the hottest part of the summer. And I'm not going to be out there in the heat, in my condition, swinging an axe. And you know what? Uh, I think somebody, I think one of my boys took the axe on a camping trip and it never came back. So now I have to buy a new axe anyway. Another setback. Here's the point. Sarcoidosis is like that machine. It's like this situation. And you're going along fat and happy. The machine breaks down. You don't want to say no. You want the lawn to be nice. You want to live your life. So you improvise. I'll go and I'll buy that axe, even if I have to wait because of the heat. And I know that eventually I'll get those roots out, even if it means just taking a few swings and then resting and then a few more and then resting and then kind of tugging and pulling. But eventually I'll get through that last little bit before I can make that yard look nice and pretty again. And today I will tell you that that is Juliet's story. She has had a tough run of it with sarcoidosis. It's gotten worse and worse and worse. She's made some progress, but she has now sark in her lungs to the point that she wears oxygen all the time. You will hear her talk about the difficulty of getting up from the dining room table and walking to the kitchen and not having enough breath. And on top of that, she's been quarantining because of COVID-19 and even a mild case of COVID would be more than her body can handle. She she knows that uh, doctors have told her that if she gets it, they won't even bother to put her on a respirator. It's that bad. And yet, she has found a way to walk back and forth in her living room and to do that and raise a lot of money for sarcoidosis research. So, and on top of all of that, Juliet is a wonderful storyteller. When you listen to her speak today, you will not know that you are listening to somebody who is very sick. And you will be so glad that you heard her talk about how she is fighting back. And you will definitely, if you're needing a little inspiration today, you're going to get it from Juliet. And her story is coming up next on the Sark Fighter Podcast. Alive. 
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast. And joining me now all the way from the UK is Juliet Coffer, a fellow Sark Fighter who's been battling sarcoidosis for over 16 years. And Juliet, welcome to the Sark Fighter Podcast. Hi there. So um, you and I were just chatting a bit before we started recording. And uh, first of all, you said it's, uh, what is the temperature there in the UK today? It's 30 degrees of significant heat. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. And you probably don't have AC in the UK, do you? No. Uh, we have one fan in the house that my husband has taken for the day. Oh, no. So you have no, no means of uh, cooling? No. He's got the smaller room to work in today. So he won. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now, so uh, for listeners who can't see you, um, you're wearing uh, uh, the tubes for oxygen and you have SARC in your lungs, correct? That's correct, yeah. And how long have you been battling this? So I got diagnosed in 2004 um, and the oxygen has been seven years now um, since 2014. Well, you are the classic case of the person who looks and sounds great. People would not know that you are sick, except you say you live in your house, as you described it as a cottage, and you have a hard time walking from where you're sitting to the kitchen? Yeah, that's right. So to look at me or to hear me speaking, you wouldn't know that there was something wrong with me apart from the oxygen tubes in my nose. Um, but as soon as I stand up, my oxygen drops off. Um, I've only got, um, I'm down to 20% gas transfer, um, which has dropped off in the last seven years. It's halved in seven years. Um, so quite low levels. Um, and I also have pulmonary hypertension, um, brought on by the sarcoidosis, uh, the pulmonary hypertension is where, I don't know if everybody knows what it is, but it's where the right side of the lung has to work very hard to push the blood through into the lungs to get the oxygen to my body. Um, but the vessels have been damaged by the sarcoidosis. So as soon as I stand up, my percentage of oxygen on a finger monitor will drop down to about 80, 82 as soon as I stand up. So by the, if I'm not on oxygen and I walk five metres from my seat here into the kitchen to make breakfast, I'm completely out of breath and I have no oxygen. I'm giddy, I'm lightheaded, um, I'm puffing, I'm panting. Um, so I don't walk very far in a day um, because it's, it's too difficult. So I keep within my level and my means, but I, I mean, 
I don't really walk more than a hundred meters in a day, which isn't very far. No. Um, you know, my garden path is 20 meters. So I, I don't go up it very often. Um, it, it's difficult, um, but it's part of life. It, it, it's just what I can, I do what I can manage. Going upstairs, I go up on my hands and on my hands and feet, crawling up like a toddler um, because it takes my lungs work better with it. It takes less oxygen. Um, so you adapt um, and you find ways of doing things that um, you wouldn't normally have thought to do them. Wow. Well, I do anyway. Wow. So. So you have a, a really hard time getting around. Now, what made you think that there was something wrong 16 years ago? What were your first symptoms? So I had no idea I was ill. I was um, slightly overweight. Um, I was probably uh, nine and a half, ten stone then. So, you know, average, slightly podgy. I smoked a lot. Um, I was smoking. Oh, goodness, help me. My parents are going to listen to this. I was smoking a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, okay. There was definitely plural packs involved. Um, so I was breathless and um, I just thought, OK, you're a little bit overweight. You don't do much exercise and you smoke. That's all it is. I, it never occurred to me I could be ill, not in a million years. I just thought, that's who I am. Maybe I need to go to a gym, get fit, give up smoking, lose a bit of weight. I'll be all right. And uh, it was the winter. And I had a couple of episodes where I had to walk up a hill. And um, once was after shopping and once was going to my hairdresser. And it wasn't a very far distance, probably a couple of hundred meters on each occasion. But by the time I got to the end point, I literally had nothing left in my lungs to breathe. And it was, I thought, oh, it's very cold, etc. Although the one time when it happened to me going back to the car from shopping, unbelievably, I lit a cigarette as I got back to the car because I thought it would help my lungs work. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know that. I remember sitting there thinking, right. why are you doing this? You can't breathe. Um, so, you know, and I just took it to be a thing. Um, and then in the February, I'd had a week where I had chest pains, never had chest pains before. And I thought, oh, my God, you've got like indigestion. You must something must have unsettled your stomach and et cetera. And uh, I went every Saturday. I used to go and do the supermarket shop for my husband and I. And uh, I went this Saturday on this Saturday. Um, they have a pharmacy section. I thought, oh, I'll go and ask for some medication. I don't want to just pick something off the shelf. I want to get the right stuff. And uh, my mum was coming down that day. Um, we were having a day together, um, planning a surprise for my dad's birthday. And uh, I went in and I spoke to the pharmacist and uh, I said, I've had some pains this week. I, I need some indigestion medicine, please. And she said, where are the pains? And I pointed across my arms and across my chest. And she looked at me and she said, you need to go to the hospital. You might be having a heart attack. Oh, my. 
So I've got a trolley full of nice food to feed my mum, who's on her way from London, coming down on an hour journey in the middle of February. Um, and the pharmacist says, go to the hospital. Out of the blue. Um, so my mum arrived. I said, mum, change your plan. And we went to the hospital. For, I walked in, I explained the situation. And they did a chest X-ray and both my lungs were, you know, when they're white, the X-ray is white and cloudy. You just couldn't see anything other than white cloud. They were complete and they were stunned. Did they know what it was? At that moment, no. They were, okay. they were stunned and horrified that I had been walking around with my lungs in that state. And they, they thought it was, ac- they said, is it acute? Has it come on recently? I didn't know. And uh, they wanted me to stay in for, that was the Saturday, they wanted me to stay until the Monday for tests. Um, now you'll see a, a pattern emerging, maybe with the questions you ask. I'm particularly squeamish and have a fear of hospitals and anything medical. Um, so I had to barter with the doctors to send me home because I refused to stay in a hospital for two, like, basically for two days without anything happening to me and I had to sign something to take responsibility for myself to come home and I was terrified you know suddenly they're showing you these x-rays and they don't know what's wrong with you and that you've got to have all these tests um and uh it's it's really quite terrifying at that moment suddenly life is changing um before your eyes and it's not until you look back you actually realize that that was the moment in time everything changed literally everything changed the whole plan that you have for your future changes in that one moment so uh so yeah so that's how they found it and then obviously lots of tests lots of and it's the usual test by elimination um they started by putting me on very high dose steroids or what i call high dose steroids 40 they started me on 40 um they uh they destroyed my weight (laughs) it didn't matter the less I ate the more weight I put on it was (laughs) it was a battle I couldn't win um so you know it it was a thing and um they assumed it was uh sarcoidosis um the steroids didn't stop it worsening so I got referred from local up to London to the Royal Brompton who have a magnificent team up there under Professor Wells. Um, I got referred to Professor Wells and Dr. Renzoni up there. And uh, again, went through more tests. Again, squeamish, wouldn't have a biopsy. (laughs) You wouldn't have a biopsy? No. Even after you saw all that in your lungs? Yes. Because they probably were thinking it was cancer. Um, Well, they'd done all the other tests and given everything else. They, I turned around to Professor Wells and said, on the basis of everything that you know about me and all the other tests, would you say it's sarcoidosis? And he said, yes. Really? Yep. Okay. Um, because they know, I mean, I suffer from anxiety. So that's one of the reasons I, I want to do as little medical to myself as possible. Yeah. Um, and um, it's probably not the best way to proceed and I probably wouldn't recommend it to other people but it's the only way that I can do with it had he said I had to have it I probably would have had to have it um so uh 
you know, uh, but I had to weigh it up on the basis of probability. But with all the other markers and the scans and etc., they he was pretty confident. I figured he'd been around long enough <laughs> to give so, me an educated. So you asked it. So who first came up with the word sarcoidosis? You or him? Um, no, it was the local doctor down here. Okay. Um, and uh, who luckily for me had knowledge of it. The respiratory um, specialist here, actually, I think there is some connection between him and the Brompton. So I was very lucky to be here in this place diagnosed in my local hospital. Um, so I, you know, I read now stories where people struggle to get diagnosis and uh, I think it's awful. Um, I mean, my GPs, some of them knew about it, some of them don't, um, you know, and uh, I am my own, I've become my own doctor. <laughs> I have my own file. I tell everybody everything they need to know. And uh, they say to me, how do you want to be treated? And I say, this is what I'd like you to do for me. Um, because you, ha I, you have to take control in some way. You do. And, it's, it's difficult. You know, when they don't know, you know, if I'm having a flare up or something and they say, what do you want to do? And I say, well, let's try this amount of steroids for this amount of time. And they, I mean, they obviously they must agree that that's a, a prudent step or they wouldn't yeah. do it. Absolutely. Or I say, let's hold off, give it two or three days, see if it really is, and then we'll try it. So I'm quite lucky that they work with me on it. But um, I've learned you have to be quite forthright to get what you want in a nice way. Um, but you have to be quite forthright to get the help you need with something like this, where there's not a lot of knowledge about the disease. Yep. All right, so so we've got you, and you've got sarcoidosis. You uh, you're on the oxygen. You're walking a hundred meters a day if you're lucky, and that's essentially inside your home. And then one day you heard about a program with Sark UK, and uh, first of all, you didn't know that there was Sark UK, right? No. Yeah, I had. Um, I've spent all these years. Um, uh, I didn't know there was support. I didn't know they had their excellent website with all the support on it. I didn't know there was Facebook groups. Um, so uh, it was quite a surprise. I got a text message to say uh, that Sarcoidosis UK, together with um, the Brompton, were organizing a virtual patient day, which I have to say was one of the most amazing learning experiences. And if anybody gets a chance, um, Sarcoidosis UK has some of those videos posted, I think, on their YouTube and social media. Um, and some of the discussion points, I learned stuff I, I didn't know. I just kind of always accepted the disease is what it is. Um, so uh, um, I think I said to you earlier, I keep it in my back pocket. <laughs> I tuck it away. I'm, I'm primarily Juliet with sarcoidosis in my back pocket. So I've never really addressed... Um, addressed it as as being a disease in that way and looked for help so I got this text message and they had this patient day and I started looking around their website and they were running some um fundraising efforts for sarcoidosis awareness month in April and uh I started reading and uh 
to just before this, um, I've been speaking to um, a physio, a pulmonary hypertension physio, who wanted me to get moving a little. So that is kind of the preface to the story. And we'd had a discussion a week or two before. And uh, she told me that even if I sit in the chair and get up and get down and sit down, that was moving. So we kind of had a plan to get me moving. And I went onto the uh, Sarcoidosis UK website, saw these fundraising ideas where I think they wanted people to walk 100 miles in a month. Well, I can't even drive 100 miles in a month, let alone, let alone walk it. So uh, there's no way I even travel that far. But um, so, and I was thinking to myself and I was sat here and it was a Friday night and my husband was doing his usual watching TV inside and I'm reading the website and I'm thinking, maybe I could do some fundraising. I've been locked in the house for however long because of the lockdowns in the UK. Um, I thought, well, what could I do? What could I achieve? And this idea started formulating in my head. Now, you have to know about me. I don't exercise. <laughs> I, apart from the fact I can't move, I was always the person who bent down and did her shoelaces up when she was being picked for netball. I didn't want to be picked. We played lacrosse. I don't know if you have lacrosse in America. We do. Okay, so when we played it as kids, the whole field was, there were no boundaries. So I used to stand out by the trees with my lacrosse stick so I didn't have to run and I could pick up all the balls on the outside of the field. So I've never been um, an exerciser. I think I did one egg and spoon when I was younger. I just, it's not for me. So to start thinking of fundraising is just, is so left field for me. And I'm sitting here on the Friday and I went into my husband. I said, what if I did like a small amount of walking and tried to raise a bit of money and he looked at me and he said do me a favor <laughs> I was like okay and then I sat here and it suddenly became a thing in my head so I rang my brother and I rang my parents just to get an idea but the thing was I knew I couldn't manage much and my biggest concern was if I walked small distances would people laugh at me because they may not understand the disease. They may not understand the condition. I, um, I moved out of London when I met my husband. Um, so by the time I was diagnosed, I was down here. But with the disease, I've kind of cut myself off from a lot of my old friends because uh, they didn't really understand at that time what I was going through. Um, so I've become very private. So I would be doing this thing and going back to these, going back to my friends and saying, I'm going to raise some money, but I'm only going to be walking about 100 metres every day. And I was really worried people would laugh at me because they wouldn't understand why it's only 100 metres in a day. Sure. So in the end, I kind of, and I've learned this a lot more since I've been doing it. It's the kind of attitude, you know, when you're writing an email and you look at it and you read it and you're not sure if you want to send it. And then you think about it some more and then you look at it again. I've learned just to press the send button in the last few months because of it. Because 
you can dither about these things all the time. And uh, one of the reasons um, that I wanted to do it is to, well, January 2019, um, my prognosis was with the pulmonary hypertension and with all my treatments that I had a 50% chance of making it to this Christmas. Oh, wow. So um, I kind of felt I wanted to make a difference in some way. And I think that's what makes you press that send button. That's what makes you want to do something that you maybe haven't done before. I'm not a, I want to go out and do a bungee jump kind of person. I'm not, a, I want to go and see Niagara Falls kind of person. Um, I'm not really any of those. I'm just a very practical person. So this seemed to be like a great bucket list thing to do is to give to people so that the, what I've been through over these years, somebody further down the line may not have to go through. And that was my final spur to do it, is that if I could raise a few hundred pounds, not very much, I wasn't planning on raising very much, um, and that could go towards the charity and go towards finding a cure, then I would have done something good. Um, instead of just sat here during lockdown, just getting on in Groundhog Day, really. So we tried it out. We had some fun. When I finally decided to do it, we thought we'd have a test run. And um, my husband said, oh, it's OK. You can manage 300 metres. I said, yeah, exactly. So uh, he, um, I said, well, let's build it up slowly. Let's do 100 one day and then 200 and then 300 so the first day i did 100 meters are you walking around the house or are you outside where are you walking oh. well my uh front room happens to be literally five meters from wall to wall so i was walking laps of my front i was walking backwards and forwards in my front room because my room. oxygen yeah okay. my oxygen machine is in there I didn't want to do it outside because pushing or carrying a canister would have taken more strain on my lungs. So this way I'm attached to an actual machine. I've got um, a cord that walks around the house with me. Um, so walking backwards and forwards in my front room uh, made a lot more sense. So it's five meters each way, made it really easy to calculate and uh, lovely lapping on the iPhone when you press the button makes life very easy. Um, so I tried 100 metres the first day. I was like, wow, I can do this. I was also on high dose pred at that point, which probably helped. Um, and, uh, and then so the next day I did 200. I was like, wow, I can really do it. Like, you push yourself and it's quite difficult. And so my husband goes, yeah. And, you know, I'm your trainer. You can do 300. And I did 300, ended up in bed for five days under doctor's orders because I completely pushed my body way too far. My body rejected everything. And I was like, OK, don't be stupid. So the lesson there is build up very, 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 very slowly. Right. So uh, right. <laughs> I know. And wow. I sacked my husband as my trainer. Um, he was put on washing up duty instead. So. <laughs> you, you sacked him. OK. <laughs> I sacked Got him. It. Got it. Um, 
so I knew I could do it. And uh, I set myself a target 30 days in April, 100 meters a day, 3000 meters in total. So around here, that is a trip to the local shops and back. And I was going to do it over the space of a month. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you started asking to uh, people to support your effort and you set out to do this, realizing that if you went too hard, you'd wind up in bed for a week. And you're going, so for those of us who don't speak metric, three meters is about 15 feet. So you're walking from one wall to the other, 15 feet. And are you doing this all at once? Or are you doing, you know, five or six trips and then take a rest? Or how are you doing it? I used to do it every morning um, because I found it easier to do it before breakfast. And I just did the 100 meters until for as long as it took. Um, But as the month went on, I was able to increase. So um, some days I did 200 or 150. um, And instead of 3000 meters, I've eventually covered 4100. So I did about a third more than I planned to. And I felt great. Um, I have to say, I don't know if it was the adrenaline um, or what it was. Um, and yes, we set out, I set up um, a Just Giving page. And we had an expectation of raising £300. That was the expectation. Um, so uh, I don't know what that is in dollars. Um Probably, That's probably, probably close to $500, 400 Yeah. Yeah. So we, I put the Just Giving page up. I put my story up. And I had some very kind fi- family members who very quickly managed to get me to 300 And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and they were all very supportive. I think that they saw it as a very positive thing to do in my condition. And uh, so we thought, okay, well, let's ask, let's put some emails out, ask friends and family, and we'll go to a thousand pounds. So um, we thought that was okay. And we sent the emails out and we'd raised five thousand pounds within about three days. And we were like, I couldn't believe it. And What's really interesting, and I've been talking to my counsellor about this, is I've shut myself away for so long. Suddenly, I was reconnecting with the outside world. And these were friends and family and friends of my parents and colleagues at work and colleagues at my husband's work. And I just was completely humbled and overwhelmed by people's kindness and generosity um i it i never expected to have that much money uh, come in um and then i started to try and get some press coverage um in the local papers uh ran a story on me um i got some web coverage um i actually got coverage both here and where my parents live <laughs> <laughs> 
so I thought I'll, I'll ask everywhere never never try and I've learned never try and miss an opportunity to raise money um and also um I'm Jewish and the Jewish papers all supported me and ran stories on me which was fantastic um and uh I got picked up off Twitter by our local TV station on the BBC um so the BBC is our main broadcaster here and there's local news areas and they came down and filmed my last day and uh they put the package together and I was very lucky um, because the day they put my piece out on TV, there were local elections in the UK and they can't broadcast political stories whilst voting is happening here. It's a no news day. So I went out on every local bulletin from six in the morning I went out at lunchtime, I went out at six in the evening, I went out at 10 o'clock in the evening. Um, I got really lucky. And we took um, nearly £2,000 that day from the TV. Wow. Government broadcasting. And what was amazing, um, there are a few amazing things. One is Sarcoidosis UK received a check from somebody who had seen me on TV and just said, I've seen this lady um and uh they put in 250 pound check just to cycle dose from seeing me on tv and people who know me from around here i'm a computer teacher here in my local area so i've taught a lot of people over my time and it was really funny people say oh i saw you on tv and even now i like ring up to do um a fish order for my husband and i haven't spoken to them for months and the lady that helps me there she says I saw you on TV when you were doing your walk thing. <laughs> That's and awesome. Like, there's a whole world out there that saw me and, and I'm just doing my thing. And it's such a weird connection to make because I'm just doing what I'm trying to do. And people are connecting to it and people are getting it. And people know it's sarcoidosis and I've put the word out there. And in fact, one person, when they donated off the back of it, wrote, your effort has done more to raise awareness of sarcoid in the last 11 years. This little known disease and even lesser understood disease leaves a dark cloud hanging over all affected. So there's people with sarcoid out there who saw that I wasn't afraid to talk about it. I wasn't hiding away. I wasn't, you know, pretending it didn't exist or trying to fight to make it be public. I was just doing something normal that other people do. And people were connecting to it in so many different ways. So, but the good thing is we're still raising money. Um, and uh, I've been on a uh, ringing into radio shows, not to raise money, but because we've got a big mask debate going on in this country and I get very angry. And I've been on a couple of things and I've plugged the, the fundraising. So we raise, raise more money that way. Awesome. Um, and we're current. Yeah, we're currently up to just over £17,000. And we have something called gift aid here, which is like a, a special kind of tax where the government adds some on. So we're basically up to £20,000 with the gift aid. 
And Sarcoidosis UK, because this money is for research, the British Lung Foundation double it. So in essence, I raised the equivalent of about £40,000, which I think is about 50 odd thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So uh, not bad for little old me. <laughs> so, Well, th- that is just, and the awareness that goes with it, uh, yes. I, you know, there's, there is, I was, I worked in public relations for a while and there's an equation that some people use and, and public relations people strongly believe in that, you know, for every minute you're on the BBC, that has a, that's got a dollar equivalent in value as if you were buying that advertising, right? So if you were to buy 30 seconds for a commercial on the BBC, it would cost X. And so if you're on TV for a minute and a half for the story, that would be three commercials and it replays over and over. It's, you know, it's got, it's got an equivalent and there's a number of people that it reaches and so forth. So, so the awareness um, aspect of it is, has a value as well as the actual fundraising. So you've really, you really hit it out of the park. I mean, that was my other aim is I wanted to raise awareness. I wanted people to know um, that the disease exists um, and even what was interesting is um, even my uncles, when they read my um, my piece on Just Giving, although because I don't get to see people very often, they had no idea of what I struggle with. They had no idea how difficult life was. And if that comes from your own family, um, they know there's been events I've missed because I've not been well enough and et cetera. Um, you know, and I, I'm a big fan that if you educate people and they have information, they can make informed judgments and decisions. Um, so if you tell people that this disease exists, when they come across it in other settings, they can understand why people are struggling, um, why someone is constantly fatigued, for example, um, if they understand that, that that is part of the disease. Um, but I was very keen. I did. I, I played like a bingo card. I have to be honest. I had targets of local press, local TV, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I got I got podcasts. So I'm here with podcasts. But I didn't get national TV and national paper. Um, and it's quite disappointing because I've tried really hard. Um, but unless you have something that people really know about um it's very hard to get national coverage for such a small disease Um, and i'm not going to give up um because i think um you know just because the disease doesn't affect as many people as a cancer for example or heart attacks i don't see why the disease shouldn't be talked about nationally in the papers and on tv well, and yeah. you're preaching to the I'm, choir now because I, I totally <laughs> agree with you. And that's one of the reasons we do this podcast is to, you know, maybe somebody in London will hear this and uh, or Sark UK can use it and they'll listen to your story and they'll become fascinated because to me, yeah. and I'm a television reporter, that's what I do. To me, the story of you walking back and forth in a 15 foot room until you reach 100 meters, 200 meters every day as an amazing effort. It, it's, it's truly yeah. uh, an indication of how hard you are willing to work to, 
try and demonstrate something. And it, and it not only does it demonstrate your willingness to work hard, it also demonstrates the difficulty of what you're doing because of sarcoidosis. Absolutely. I think the problem is at the moment is that with COVID, medical stories aren't quite so at the fore because there are so many stories related to COVID. And I think people want things a little bit happier. If I was like a YouTube star or a reality star or something, I think I might stand a, a better chance. Um, so uh, because here in the UK, people who you know are famous for being on like Love Island would probably make it onto TV. Um, but no time soon am I going to put my bikini on and go on Love Island, not even for <laughs> sarcoidosis. <laughs> So are you still doing the walking? Are you still doing going back and um, forth? Well, I intended to. It goes back to the I'm not very much into exercise. What happened is, is I'd done so much exercise. I stopped for a week and my muscles seized up. So, yes. And I also got a flare. I, I flared. My sarcoid flared. Um after I had the vaccine and I know some people are experiencing this mm-hmm. um, and uh, I was unable to walk for best part of six or seven weeks. My leg just stopped working. Um, I don't know if it's sarcoid starting to get into my joints, legs, muscles. I don't know. Um, I probably don't want to know. And I just, um, so I've taken it easy. Um, I've just come off the back of some high dose steroids and I'm feeling a bit better. So I'm thinking about starting again, but small. So maybe doing 50 meters slowly, not in the 30 degrees of heat we've got today for sure. Um, but, um, and definitely through the winter when you move less, um, I want to try and make sure I move more um so it's always in my head to do it it's just whether my body wants to follow my head i see and and so your fundraising is is now just fundraising like like you're past the april sarcoidosis awareness month window obviously because we're speaking in july um but the fundraising continues just based upon need people are hearing that there's a need to fund sarcoidosis and you, you've, you've created a sort of situation where you're a bit of a poster child for it. And, uh, and you want people to rally around your efforts and to, and to contribute. Absolutely. And um, the discussion, I had a, a, a long chat with Leo from Sar- uh, Sarcoidosis UK. Yes. And I do believe that the way to present stories to the media is and you, you would you would obviously know this uh, with your background, but you need a human face. You need to see the person who's affected. So um, one of the radio calls I I rung up for was a channel called LBC. It's a London news broadcast channel, but it covers the UK. And it was just after we've got this situation here where the government have decided that all the restrictions shouldn't be mandatory and. They're relying on personal responsibility for people to wear masks and do the right thing. And I rang in to tell people about 
sarcoidosis. So they would, and what my situation is, what my prognosis is, and why I need people to wear masks. And uh, I was on for 10 minutes telling my story. Yeah, I was on for a long time explaining my story, explaining how hard it is. And um, when I came off, the response on Twitter was amazing. And people writing to me saying, I I never really understood. Um, I'm going to keep wearing my mask. And I changed minds that day. Um, And he actually said that a bit later on after I'd been on. And he said from the feedback he had is I'd touched a lot of hearts with my story, but also changed a lot of minds. And I think when people understand why they need to wear a mask, it's not just because we say, oh, we want to go out. You have to explain to people why you need that protection. And you have to be a person and you know, you could be their sister, mother, aunt. And without that connect, people don't often understand, which is why I went on the radio. I thought people needed to understand that we're real people. So, you know, when there's a thing here where they say it's inevitable, some people will die from COVID. But I say it shouldn't be inevitable. I'm a person just like everybody else. And my life shouldn't be based on the inevitability that you think it is. I'm as, a, I'm as entitled to live as the next person. And uh, I think until you put a person to that, people don't really understand what impact a statement like that has. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, and kudos to you for getting that done. And 10 minutes on a radio show is an eternity. That's just, it's, you know, uh, that's but- shoot. But as you can tell, I can talk a lot. Well, and, but you tell a great story. You're very good at it. So thank, thank you. you. I hope everybody is leaning in as much as I am to hear what you're talking about. What Have you got an update on your prognosis? Um, I haven't at the moment. Um, I'm kind of just hanging on in there. Um, my husband, we're trying very hard. We've been shielding now. Well, I decided the winter before COVID to stay in. I'd had some really bad chest infections the year before um, to the point where I couldn't eat for three months. I was on liquids and I was like, I don't want to go through that again. So in October 19, I decided I'll stay in for five months and I'll go out in the spring. (laughs) And then came the pandemic. So um, today is day 640 in the house um yeah shielding um 640 days in the house yes so that includes, does that mean you don't even go into your garden um i um i've been in the garden but not i i won't go beyond our patio i i'm i'm nervous to go out i have had to go to the brompton for one set of tests um which they were brilliant for they I was lucky enough to be the first person in, so I didn't see anybody. Um, And I've made one trip to see my parents, who we've seen once in 21 months. Um, And I stood 10 metres away with masks on. Um, And uh, I tell this story, but um, my dad wanted to have some soup for lunch. And I virtually made him drink it through a straw under his mask because I was so terrified. Of it, of of being near people, um, so I have become 
very, very scared. So um, I don't know what my prognosis is because I haven't had lung function for ages. I know my oxygen is getting worse. I know it's dropping more. Um, is that a decline in my lungs and the condition? Is that a result of the vaccine? Is it just a flare up? I don't know. But I'm just going to keep living. And my husband and I, we live in this little world, um, just living each day as though it's normal, um, within limitations. Uh, we have a rule that nothing's important. Uh, we don't, if we argue, we argue about how we cook the courgettes. Um, you know, there's everything's too short. Um, we've had to have that chat about what happens if um which at my at 50 is not the kind of chat you want to have um but you know decisions have to be made um uh, you have to have to go down that road so my prognosis i don't know whatever will be will be there's a 50% chance of not making it to Christmas. There's a 50% chance I'll make it beyond Christmas. We just have to live and wait and see what will happen. Well, so Christmas is, you know, July. So what, five months from now? Yeah. yeah. As we're speaking. Yeah. You certainly, you, you, you don't look like someone who has five months to live. No. My lungs tell a different story. Wow. I know. But, you know, and that's the whole point of this disease, isn't it? It's invisible. It is. Um, It is. And what will probably do for me, as they say, is God forbid catching an infection. That's that would be the trigger. COVID, I wouldn't. They told me I won't survive COVID, the state of my lungs, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why we're locked away. Um, Yeah, your lungs can't take one more hit beyond what they're already doing. There's no at twenty percent gas transfer. There's no space for infection. Right, right. right. So, uh, you know, what, but yeah. So, at what point do they put it, somebody on a ventilator when they look at that gas transfer? I would think twenty percent, ten percent. Is that? Do you know? I. They won't ventilate me. They won't. No. They I've been told that they don't think it's worth it. They don't think it'll work. No. No. Wow. Ugh. So you've got to continue to be extremely careful, but you have been vaccinated. That's good. Yeah. And I can live in hope that it's worked. But right. on, on drugs, I'm on metatrixate and steroids. So, uh, and I haven't come off steroids in all these years. And metatrix, I've been on metatrixate and steroids for the whole 16 years. I've never been able to get off them. So uh, my body... I guess it's just addicted to the steroids in many ways. Yeah. Yep. And steroids are, they're, they're nasty in and of themselves. And the prednisone we've done, we've done a special podcast just on prednisone. Um, and, uh, you know, the doctors, one doctor came on and said prednisone would never even get approved as a drug today because it's so toxic to our bodies. Um, even though it does, as advertised, it does so many other things that the side effects would, would if it was trying to get approved today, would be deemed as, you know, as more damaging than the good, and it would not get approved as a drug. But because it was years ago, now it's out there, and we all take it. So, yeah. Um, 
Well, um, so you're on Twitter and you're on Facebook and you, you will send me all of your, uh, what is your handle on Twitter? Um, it's an interesting question because I changed it recently. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I am at Juliet Coffer, J-U-L-I-E-T-C-O-F-F-E-R. Okay, very good. And so I'll put contact information for everybody. Uh, with the show notes for this so they can click and they can follow you on Twitter. And are you also on Facebook or Instagram or? Um, I am, but not really. Not really. Kind okay. Of. Yeah. So I, I, I'm on Instagram following about three people. Okay. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> haven't quite, haven't got quite got round to square pictures and um on Facebook, it's just literally, I'm Facebook for just my family. So, Okay. Well, wherever people can reach you, if you would send me that contact information, I'll make sure to get it out there for you. And, and maybe, okay. just maybe someone listening to this will, will make another donation. Who knows? That would be great. Um, so my Just Giving page um, is just, uh, if you type in Just Giving and Juliet Coffer, um, you'll find me. Okay. Or I'll send I'll send you the link through. Is yes, that okay? Yeah, please please send me the link. That would be easier. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and the money goes to Sarcoidosis UK. Leo. Yep. Yep. Goes to Leo at Sar- well, not personally Leo, but yes, to Sarcoidosis UK. Yeah. Um, and Leo has has promised me it will go towards. They run a uh, every year they put a certain amount towards research for a cure, so it will be ring fenced and go towards that so uh, right and, and that's leo that. leo um casimo or casimo i can't remember how to pronounce his last name yeah uh, and he was a guest here on the podcast just recently so if people want to hear all about what sarcoidosis uk is doing they can go back and listen to that back episode i believe it was three episodes before this one maybe four but uh, i'll make it easy with the with the show notes or you can just search for for Sark Fighter and uh, Sarcoidosis UK and, and uh, Leo and his interview will come up. And uh, I liked him. He uses the word brilliant a lot. We don't use that so much in, in the United <laughs> States. So when someone says brilliant, I just, I love it. So um, he called the podcast brilliant. So that, that made me happy. He's correct. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, and I encourage, uh, if you want to share uh, the, the Sark Fighter podcast information with everybody there in the UK, you know, let's let's spread the word as best we can and, Absolutely. and just keep the ball rolling so everybody knows about sarcoidosis to the point where it's not this seldom heard of disease. Absolutely. And so that the people that really need it can get the help they need. Very good. Juliet Coffer, thank you so much for joining me here today on the podcast. My pleasure. So isn't Juliet a treat? I mean, here she is. She's cooped up in her house and she finds a way to get it done. She pushed a bit too hard. She had a setback when she tried to do 300 yards. So then she spends a week in bed, but then she gets right back at it. And now the media is finding her story and she's raising a lot of money to fight the disease. And I just want to salute Juliet 
and thank her for volunteering to come on the Sark Fighter podcast and to share her story publicly with her local media there in the UK. And let's just hope that uh, that more and more people find out about what she's doing and that she's able to continue to fight the disease and, and, and do great things. Uh, by the way, um, all the information is in the show notes if you if you want to help Juliet. Now, for the record, I still haven't bought my axe, if you're worried about my backyard, and there are still a few roots out there sticking up, but I'm determined to get to it, even if it's fall, before I get there. Also, if you are new to the disease and you're trying to figure out what you have, and what's going on with your body. If you've just stumbled across the Sark Fighter podcast, go back and listen to my interview with Dr. Simon Hart in episode two. That's kind of like Sarcoidosis 101. He just talks about everything going on with sarcoidosis. If you want to know more about me and my backstory, uh, my, my story is actually episode one. I figured I had to put it all out there if I was going to ask people to come on and do the same. So uh, no holds barred. It's all out there. And then uh, in a recent release is an interview with Leo uh, Casimo or Casimo, uh, who heads up Sarcoidosis UK, and that's episode 38, and he is the one who told me about Juliet, uh, and so uh, I want to thank him for that. But if you're in the UK and you've heard Juliet's story and you want to know more about what's going on there uh, in England and uh, Great Britain and the surrounding areas, uh, then go ahead and, uh, and give that a listen. And then, hey, you know, worldwide, there is a lot of progress being made. So episode 39 with Dr. William Damsky of Yale University and Dr. Matt Baker at Stanford, the most recent upload, uh, I believe that's episode 41, uh, are both working on trials for new drugs, new therapies to fight SARC and give us all a way to maybe uh, beat this disease, especially without using prednisone. So that's showing a great deal of promise, and they both have gone through uh, in detail, but detail that the layperson can understand their research. So I'm very excited that we're getting some of the top researchers to join me here on the podcast and to share. I'm glad that we can be a platform for them to share what they're finding out, and I'm glad for you to be able to know it. So uh, I'm just really thankful. So Dr. William Damsky at Yale, Dr. Matt Baker at Stanford, and uh, those guys are just great guys. You'll enjoy listening to that. And then don't go back and don't forget to go back and listen to a couple of bonus episodes. First of all, on sarcoidosis and COVID-19, which I moderated, and then another bonus episode on dealing with prednisone. These are sort of like little town halls, and uh, these are just rare opportunities to hear the top experts in the field talk about how prednisone affects us and and how COVID-19 is a a special beast for those of us uh, taking autoimmune drugs. So uh, those two special episodes are back there. In the meantime, uh, please send me an email, carlinagency at gmail.com. That's in the show notes. And also follow The Sark Fighter on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, I do appreciate your interest in this podcast. It helps me reach more people and grow the show if you share the link on your social media. And really, if you like it, If you would just tell one person, just tell some other person in the sarcoidosis space about what's going on here at the podcast, and and let's continue to spread the message as far and wide as we can and raise awareness 
about sarcoidosis. So thanks again to uh, Juliet Coffer for joining me here on the Sark Fighter podcast, and I really hope that she continues to thrive and to prosper as best she can in her situation, and we wish her all the best with her fundraising and thank her for telling her story. Until next time, people, keep fighting. Fear and